Well, let's open our Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 6 again. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll continue our study of the believer's armor. Specifically, we're going to be looking today at what it means to be anchored by the gospel's cleats. That is not a misprint. Yes, the gospel has cleats, and I trust you'll understand that by the end of our exposition. While you're turning to Ephesians 6, I read an article this week that was very encouraging um, just for my own soul. I thought I would share a little bit with you uh, by uh, my friend Jim Neuheiser, who was talking about the relationship between preaching and counseling or preaching and discipleship. He quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said this, true preaching does deal with personal problems so much that True preaching saves a great deal of time for the pastor. I'm speaking out of 40 years of experience, Lloyd-Jones says. The preaching of the gospel from the pulpit applied by the Holy Spirit to the individuals who are listening has been the means of dealing with personal problems of which I, as the preacher, knew nothing until people came to me at the end of the service. I can certainly identify with that as well. He also quotes Jay Adams, who said, The counseling preacher can work preventatively. What he regularly sees in the study, he can warn against in the pulpit. Nothing enables a preacher to ring the bell in a Sunday sermon like knowing that in counseling, he has already helped five persons with what he is about to say, end quote. And then at the end of that article, Neuheiser himself says this, the public ministry of the word preaching And the private ministry of the word, which is counseling, are not in competition with each other. Rather, they complement each other. Each is necessary in a healthy church, and each is an essential aspect of a pastor's calling. I bring that up because that the article certainly resonated with what I have seen and sensed since we've begun this study of what we call affectionately the believer's armor. It is in some sense mass preaching counseling. And I would join you in the pews, uh, not just from the pulpit, that the Lord is certainly speaking to my heart and really saying, here is a way to self-counsel, to self-correct, to understand how to put on defenses against the devil who is certainly after your soul and after your affections. Well, Ephesians 6, Paul gives his final paragraph. And this paragraph outlines our enemy and his strategies against us by showing us the defenses that God has given us. These defenses are specifically armed for the specific attacks of the devil and demons. Let me read the paragraph for you just to have it fresh in your mind. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Notice these accents on standing and standing firm. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and, having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod or literally sandaled your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The human foot is an amazingly designed invention of God. Your feet, your foot rather, a single foot, is made up of 26 bones, has a surprising 33 joints. Your foot also has 19 muscles and 107 ligaments, numerous tendons as well. When you add the two feet together, get this, the bones in your two feet make up nearly one-fourth of the bones in all of your body by number. Our feet are complex, of a complex and complicated design with a very simple set of purposes. They provide balance, movement, stability, allowing our bodies to walk and stroll and run and to stand. Your feet quite literally keep you grounded on this planet most of your time. It's no wonder the shoe industry is so prolific. I remember going on my first serious hunting trip with a friend who was taking me and he insisted, Rick, I understand that you're going to get a lot of gear, but the most important gear you can get are your boots. I didn't understand that at the time, but he did say this. You have trouble with your feet. You will have trouble with everything else. Well, having gone on a few challenging hunts in my lifetime, let me affirm, he's correct. Your feet go and then you go. Let's review a little bit what we're talking about with reference to Paul's argument here at the end of Ephesians, his letter to this church at Ephesus. The apostle, as you remember, is under house arrest. He's being guarded by a Roman soldier, probably a series of Roman soldiers who would trade shifts. As he closes his letter to the Ephesians, he uses this soldier and his armor as an illustration of, of a believer's armor in our battle against Satan and demonic creatures. Paul affirms that Christians are in a spiritual battle. Whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, you woke up this morning in a war. This war is against Satan and against demons. Now, we know that Satan is a, is a, a, a title that represents all of, of his minions, all of his henchmen, demons, these uh, fallen angels who work alongside him. But we also remember from our study very early in this paragraph that Satan is not the bad God. He's not the opposite of God. He's not equal to God. He is a localized creature, a local entity, which means he can only be at one place at one time. Now, he may be fast and moving from one place to another, but he can't be everywhere omniscient and omnipresent. But he does have demons who work with him, alongside him, and for him. Friends, let me tell you, in this room, 
among our chairs, sitting or standing with us at this very moment, are demonic forces, are fallen angels who are fast observing us, fast observing you. They've been alive for thousands of years. They've had critical observation opportunities to see temptation and how it works. Even more than that, they've been watching you. And they know what temptation trips you up best and trips you up most, which may be different than what trips someone else up. These creatures are powerful, vicious, deceptive, smart, and creative, and they don't fight fair. They desire to cripple you in your faith, stunt your spiritual growth, make you doubt God, make you doubt God's word. Ultimately, their goal is to destroy or prevent faith. So as Paul considers this cosmic warfare, this spiritual battle, he looks to this Roman soldier soldier guarding him and takes note of his armor. This becomes then an illustration that he pins right into the pages of this letter to the Ephesians that a believer also has elements of armor that we are to don, put on for protection in in the battle that, that we're engaged in. Now, he's already spoken to us in these first two pieces about the belt of truth. That's where he starts. And it makes sense he would start with the belt, the, literally the girdle, what girds your tunic, the belt of truth, which cinches everything up together because Satan is the father of lies. So it makes sense he would begin with truth to say the truth of God, which is contained in the truth of God's word, is the way that you battle the satanic lies that are rife in our culture and even baked into our intuition. Then he moved to the breastplate of righteousness. It was like a vest. We would liken it to a bulletproof vest that a policeman or a soldier would wear today, but it protected the vital organs. And this breastplate was of righteousness. And we said that's applying and believing the righteousness of Christ given to us and also living righteously, which is the opposite of living unrighteously, which is the devil's goal. So as Paul looks at that soldier... It should not surprise us that his eyes drop to the floor and he looks at the soldier's feet. And we should expect that Paul would notice and comment on his shoes or his sandals the soldier is wearing. Verse 15. And having shod, and really, it's a strange verb. It's literally sandaled having put sandals on, having sandaled or shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, the good news of peace. He no doubt has Isaiah in in the back of his mind, and I want to deal with a, a debate that rages about this verse, and let's just kind of settle it in our own hearts. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. There's the peace associated with shoes. And brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. He quotes that, Paul does, in Romans 10, verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? And then he references Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. 
Now, that idea of feet, which wear shoes that are bringing good news, leads some to believe that the preparation of the gospel of peace in these shoes means going, you're wearing shoes, going to preach the gospel. That's a great thought. And we should preach the gospel. And there are lots of verses about being faithful to go preach the gospel. But I don't think that's exactly what's being talked about here. One commentator says this, Paul has in mind the loyal, joyful proclamation of the gospel in the Messianic New Testament period, a readiness for active propagation of the good news of the gospel, which is the most effective means of combating satanic powers. Who would argue with that? I mean, I, I agree with that on the surface. But having sandaled your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, is that really about going to preach and proclaim the gospel? I don't think that's exactly Paul's meaning here. Although that's a wonderful admonition that we should follow, and Romans 10 certainly tells us we should. Look closer at the text. Paul writes that a believer is to have his feet shod or sandaled with the preparation, maybe a better way of reading this, the readiness, the readiness of the gospel of peace. He does not say having shod his feet with the proclamation of the gospel of peace, which would have been preaching or sharing the gospel. And that's a wonderful thing to do. Just not in this verse. The entire context of this description of the believer's armor is on the defensive nature of the armor, not the offensive. Now, the one exception would be the sword of the Spirit that can be used offensively and defensively, as we'll see. But again, my, my hero in Ephesians, Dr. Honer, helps us here. He writes, Paul depicts believers as having put on another defensive piece of armor. Therefore, rather than preach the gospel of peace, believers are ready or prepared to stand against the onslaughts of the evil forces because they are firmly grounded in the gospel of peace. It is the believer's sure-footedness in the tranquility of the mind and security of the heart in the gospel of peace that gives him readiness to stand against the devil and his angelic host. That is an important enough sentence. I want to read it again. It is the believer's sure-footedness in the tranquility of the mind and security of heart in the gospel of peace that gives him readiness to stand against the devil and his angelic hosts. It is somewhat paradoxical that the gospel of peace is the preparation for warfare against the hosts of evil, end quote. Purpose of these shoes then, spiritually, is twofold. To maintain solid footing. We'll get into the details of that in a moment. And to be ready for action because that's the way you ambulate, you get around, is your feet. Having sandaled yourself, shod your feet with the preparation or readiness of the good news, the gospel of peace. So, what is this a defense against then? If this is a defense against the devil and his demons and its sure-footedness and readiness with our, our sandals attached to stand firm in the gospel of peace, what does that mean? Well, to understand it fully, let's look more at the illustration, okay? Let's consider the soldier's footwear. It was called a kalaga. Roman legionaries wore a heavy, thick-soled sandal called a kalaga 
These sandals were a kind of half boot with soles made of several layers of sewn together leather. The leather bottom averaged about three quarters of an inch thick. We have uncovered thousands of these in excavations. When I say we, I wasn't there. Archaeologists have done that. How's that? But these sandals were different than the normal everyday footwear, which we've also excavated thousands of pairs of. They're different than the normal everyday footwear. The bottom of these sandals were studded with hollow-headed hobnails. They were, in effect, cleats, like a soccer or a football player or a baseball player would wear. They were cleats that had hobnails on the bottom to grip. Further, they were tied by interwoven leather straps that extended up around the shin over the calf. By the way, when it got cold, they would loosen those leather straps and then stuff wool or fur between the straps and their skin for warmth. Again, Dr. Honer helps us here. This verb, to shod, hupodeo, or the noun for sandal, or uh, the verb for sandal, he, he turns a, a noun into a verb. Sandal your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Here's the picture. Paul sees a believer as needing to be ready to stand firm so that they are stable and immovable knowing that demonic forces are trying to bump you off your stand, bump you off your guard, move you off of your stance. In hand-to-hand combat, there was lots of pushing and wrestling and shoving and holding ground. And the picture here is that the enemy is going to attempt to knock a believer off his feet, get him off balance, so he's vulnerable to attack. And the way he's going to do that, as we'll see, is to make us unstable in our faith. So back to the illustration. What makes us stable? He says, readiness in the gospel, the good news of peace. It's an interesting construction. The gospel of peace. Very simply, this is the settled confidence in our theology of God's saving nature and saving acts. Settled confidence, peace. Settled confidence in our theology of God's saving nature and saving acts. He's disposed. He he wants to save sinners, and he has done what needs to be done to save us. Listen for a second how important this is to Paul. Romans 15, 33. Now, the God of peace be with you all. That's not just some nicety. The God of peace has a context, has a meaning. Hold on to that for a moment. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. So Paul adds that the God of peace comes to bear when we do spiritual battle with the enemy, not only in Ephesians 6, but there in Romans chapter 16 as well. Paul began the letter of Ephesians with this. Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul call the good news, the gospel, the gospel of peace? Well, very simply, because the good news of Jesus' saving work establishes peace between us and God. It brings the peace that we need with God. More on that in a moment. It brings the peace of God between us and others, and it brings peace with our circumstances. That settled theological confidence. So if peace is a settled theological confidence, then Satan is going to work to dislodge your confidence in your theology. Now, I don't want to bore you, but some of us geek out on this stuff. Paul uses the term peace some eight times in Ephesians. We already saw it in chapter 1, verse 2. In chapter 2, verse 14, this will come back in a moment to he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, next verse, verse 15, by establish, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the, the hostility that existed between them, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Remember that for a, minute, for a moment. Ephesians 2, 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near, to Jews and Gentiles. The message of the gospel is you can have peace with God because you have hostility with God from birth. Ephesians 4, 3, once we have this peace, Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond or the glue of what? Peace. Here in Ephesians 6, 15, having sandaled your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and then he closes the epistle in verse 23, peace to the brethren. The letter begins and ends with peace. Now, he does have grace and peace. Now, I'll remind you what we did a deeper dive on and back in chapter 1 on this. The two things that we need more than anything are grace and peace, because grace is everything you need, and peace, rightly defined, is everything you want. We need grace more than anything else. We need the grace of God. We need God to condescend to give us the righteousness of Christ so that we were accepted by Him in heaven and take our sin away by dying on a cross in our stead. That's what we need most. But peace, peace is really the best way to describe everything the human heart wants. Everything we try to do is to establish equilibrium and peace in our life by things we want, we, by things we, we want to obtain, by, by relationships we want to resolve, experiences we want to have is all for peace. Why, why? Have you ever thought about this? Why is the most common greeting and why is the most common farewell in the Jewish language for centuries been what? Shalom. I hope you get what you want. That's the greeting. Shalom. In short, grace is what we need most and peace is what we seek most. And both are found in God. And that's a part of the good news of the gospel of peace. So let's dive into this practically. I said earlier this is kind of self-counsel. To be honest, studying this was like trying to counsel myself looking at some trouble that I have that I see percolating in my own heart 
And this is such a sweet spiritual salve to help us all. So let's look at it like this. The gospel of peace defends against. I'm going to give you four realities or four things that it defends against. But we'll finish that sentence. The gospel of peace defends against, number one, the devil's temptation to question God's disposition toward us. He tries to tempt us to question what God is like and what God has done. Someone asked me first hour, why did you capitalize the word devil? Because he is a, that's a proper title. There's only one and we're not giving him respect. We're saying he's real. The devil's temptation to question God's disposition toward us. This goes, frankly, to the heart of assurance. I've shared with you many times. Let me, let me share again. If you piled every counseling um, opportunity I've had into a big pile and divided it by topics and you separated them into little bins and, and you looked at which one was the fullest, there's, there's one that has way more in it than any other. And that's assurance. How can I be sure that I'm saved? If you believe the gospel, trust me, Satan wants to do nothing more than make you think you are at enmity with God when you have peace with God. One of the ways that you defend against his attack is you have confidence, settled theological confidence in this peace that God gives in our faith being placed in the gospel. We often sing about this in Charity Lee Bancroft's hymn. You just, we just sang it last week. When Satan tempts me to despair, how does he do that? And tells me of the guilt within. Can you relate to that? I, I, hope, I hope I can still serve as pastor when I tell you this. I have, many, have had many times over the course of my pilgrimage toward heaven, where I have stopped and wondered, am I really saved? Is this re I mean, I see what I do. I know what I think. I feel what I feel in my heart. I mean, this is not always how a Christian acts. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what's the solution? Upward I look, Upper and see him there. He's the one who made the end of all my sin. The enemy wants us to doubt God's disposition toward us after we have believed the gospel. If he can't keep us from believing the gospel, once we do, he will try to get us to question it and to question God's character. He can't possibly love you if you're like that, if you think that, if you've done that, if you've said that. The devil wants us to think that we are still under the wrath of God. There's no peace between us and God. It's a rocky relationship between us and God. God is fickle about his love for us. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We are born under the rightful wrath, the furious, hell-bound wrath of God. We are born that way. But remember what Paul proclaimed for the next four chapters after Romans 1? About salvation comes by grace through believing, through faith. So at the end of that description of justification by faith alone and 
Christ alone, by grace alone. In chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans, Paul says, Therefore, having been made right, having been justified by faith, listen to this, we have peace with God. If the devil can't keep you as an enemy of God, once you're God's friend, he wants to try to reintroduce the thought that you are still under that wrath and still an enemy. This is resolved in the gospel of Christ through Jesus' work on the cross. Just a few verses later in Romans 5, verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. We've spoken about this so many times. It's a noble thing to die for someone. To give your life for someone is the highest expression of love. And Paul says, if you do this for a righteous man, a good guy, a, a friend, that's a, it's a noble thing. And he says, but God, God didn't do that. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were not a righteous man, not a friend, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If you believe that, and if you've trusted that, and if your life is anchored on that precious reality, Satan would love little more than to make you doubt that. It's almost hilarious what Paul says, much more than. After he says, Christ died for the ungodly, much more than. I mean, who adds much more than to that thought? Paul does. Much more than having now been justified his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are saved from wrath. We have peace with God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than he has another much more than. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And not only this, too much more, more, much more than, and a not only this. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive the reconciliation. No longer enemies, no longer hostile. We have peace with God. This piece of armor anchors us to the ground theologically. It makes us immovable. It defends us against wrong thinking about God's nature, wrong thinking about God's disposition toward us as believers. In short, the good news of the gospel is that we have peace with God. And that will only make sense to us if we really understand and grasp our hostility, our enmity, our distance from God at our birth. And the way that salvation, what did Paul say, brings us near. So the gospel of peace defends against the devil's temptation to question God's disposition toward us. Secondly, the gospel of peace defends against the devil's temptation not to resolve conflict with others. Let me just say as clear as possible, Satan loves disunity. He loves conflict. He laughs at conflict. He rejoices with conflict. He loves to see us at odds with others. Back to Ephesians 2. I said we would come back to it. Jews and Gentiles hated each other, and for good reasons. 
They dressed differently. They ate differently. They recreated differently. They, they worshiped differently. And so you have this church at Ephesus, and you have Jews and Gentiles sitting in the same synagogue probably saying, what's up with him? What's up with her? He himself, Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing Doing away with in his flesh the cross, the enmity, the conflict, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He might reconcile them both into one body through to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity their enemy relationship with each other. And then he says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away, Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, Jews. People who hated each other were brought together by the gospel of peace. We've talked many times as an elder team about Satan's schemes against our church We see them, we feel them, we recognize some of them, and I wish we recognized them all. But we've said often that it's very unlikely that Satan will attack Mission Road Bible Church doctrinally. We've had people with some strange doctrines come, and they've gone. But we're too accountable. We have a pretty precise doctrinal statement. We have thousands of sermons online by our pastoral staff and our our elder team that you can listen to. It's pretty... What we believe is pretty grounded. It doesn't mean we couldn't err, but it's pretty stable. Our suspicion is Satan would likely not try to get at us doctrinally. He would try to get at us regarding unity, regarding disloyalty. Satan can so easily disrail the ministry of an individual and, frankly, dis derail the ministry of a whole church through disunity and division. It, it, it's, it would be a surprise to talk to any believer who couldn't either point to their past or point to someone they know whose church was destroyed from disunity. There's a church split. Satan would love to disrupt our ministry by disunity. Are you ready for this? With people in this church. Suspicions. Not believing the best. Not loving. Not forgiving. Not correcting. That's why Paul prods us individually in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible... If possible, listen to this. So far as it depends on you, go to every means you can take. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The gospel of peace means we live with this reality of our peace with God, which moves us to be at peace with everyone around us, especially believers and especially in Christ's body. Then in Romans 14, verse 19, 
Paul says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's actually encouraging one another and building up one another. It's encouragement to each other in care groups, small groups, Sunday mornings. The writer to the Hebrews also said, pursue peace with all men, listen to this, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, that's, that's a heavy statement. He associates sanctification or holiness with pursuing peace. And he says, if you don't do that, you won't see the Lord. You know what the, that's shorthand for? If you are a bitter Christian who refuses to resolve conflict, you are likely not truly converted. A few verses later, he calls God the God of peace in Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now, the God of peace who brought up Jesus from the dead, the God of peace, if God gave us peace between himself and us, if he is in his nature the God of peace, then who are we to hold and to bolster enmity, conflict, bitterness with anyone? You say, yeah, yeah but what if they have that toward us? Do you know the story of your Savior? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed or happy are the who? Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here's what's interesting about that. They shall be called the sons of God. When you're a peacemaker, when you're one who pursues peace and not conflict, when you like resolving conflict, people should look at you and say, he reminds me, she reminds me of their heavenly father. They're acting like him. Because God is the God of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that's what it means to live in the gospel of peace. And that is a defense against the disunifying, slivering, accusatory, powerful, vengeful schemes of the devil. Do you easily fall to Satan's temptation to be at odds with others. He himself, verse Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. That's the good news. The defense is simple. It's peace. That defends us against the onslaught of the devil. How do we break that down? Well, we have peace with others by confessing sin, itemizing it, asking forgiveness, granting forgiveness, and communication, you cannot resolve conflict and you cannot establish peace unless you talk about these things. Isn't it true, if you've been a Christian very long, isn't it true, joyfully true, that Christianity, your Christian faith, involves a lot of uncomfortable conversations? Seems like I have multiple conversations a week that I think, this is not comfortable, and God is always glorified in doing what's right. Number three, the gospel of peace defends against the devil's temptation to doubt God and difficulties. 
And trust me, he wants you to doubt God when tough times come. But remember, peace is what we really want, which is the settled confidence in God's got it all under control and worked out. Our theology is intact. But Satan constantly tries to use our difficulties to make us doubt God. Very important passage that has the peace element of the good news embedded in the center of it. Philippians 4, Philippians 4, verse 4 and following, you know this well. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness or your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That, that little phrase, those four words, the Lord is near, that could, that, that's a life changer. That's a game changer. Then he says this. Listen to the comprehensive nature of this statement. Be anxious or be worried for nothing. Said another way, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, there's a nothing and an everything right next to each other. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's not requests like, Lord, I want some new shoes. I want a new, new blouse. I want a new jacket. No, these requests are what we're praying about regarding that, which made us anxious. Talk to the Lord about it. Verse 7, and the what? The peace of God the peace of God, this is amazing, which surpasses all comprehension beyond human thinking, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about that as your emotions and your thinking. It will guard them. See the guarding nature of peace and how that's the good news of the gospel of peace, which is a defense against the devil. Now, if you're looking carefully, and you're thinking wisely, you'll say, well, that, that's, that's, that's good, but that's kind of principle and it's ethereal, it's way up there, and it's not, not very practical. Listen to the next verse, Philippians 4, 8. Now, I want to go to the, I'm going to do something different. I want to read you the end of the verse and then go back and grab the end. I'm going to give you what's on this side of the equal sign and give you all the factors that get there. He says, dwell on these things. Think on these things. Your emotions and your mind, your thinking will be guarded from Satan's attacks if you dwell, if you think on these things. What things? Finally, brethren, whatever is true. Does that sound like the girdle of truth? Whatever is honorable, right and righteous things. Whatever is right versus wrong. Whatever is pure versus unholy and impure. Whatever is lovely, in other words, worthy of being adored. Whatever is of good repute, has a good reputation. You take that, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell, let your mind dwell on these things. That's part of using the gospel of peace to guard us against Satan's attacks. Anxiety makes us feel like we're running in water spiritually. Oh, there's a lot, of, a lot of action, a lot of calories being spent, but not getting very far, very fast. 
It slows us down. Anxiety distracts us, puts us all on all the focus on, of our minds on ourselves rather than on others or the Lord. And Paul says that it is the peace of God that will guard our hearts and minds, our feeling and our thinking. And the access for getting this peace in these, these verses is very clear. Pray about these things and think correctly. And you can't do that without flooding your mind with God's word. Yes, this is the Read Your Bible More sermon again. Lastly and very quickly, fourth, the gospel of peace defends against the devil's temptation to question God's disposition toward us, against the devil's temptation not to resolve conflict with others, against the devil's temptation to doubt and difficulties, doubt God and difficulties, and fourthly, against the devil's temptation to live in discontentment. Say, so what does that have to do with peace? The opposite of peace is discontentment. Satan tempts us moment by moment with discontentment so that we are unsettled and lack peace. It's related to the previous point about anxiety, but the heart of discontentment, this is hard to swallow. You ready? The heart of discontentment is you're disappointed with God. You're disappointed with what God has done, what God has not done, and you're not content with what God has said. We're discontent with his ways, his providence, his dealings with us. That moves us into a lack of peace or anxiety or discontentment. And we begin to believe that a change in circumstances will automatically mean a change in heart. I wish it was that easy. We're tempted to believe that we cannot or will not be happy unless we get what we want. And what we naturally want will never make us happy enough. Only God will. We've covered this many times. Romans 5, I read 6 through 11. How about 1 to 5? Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained by our introduction, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's our standing firm again. We rejoice or exult in the hope of the glory of God being revealed with him in heaven. And not only do we re rejoice in the hope of heaven, not only this, this is this would be crazy if it wasn't in the Bible. We also rejoice. In our tribulations. What? Who says that? Who can say that? Paul, because of the next word. We rejoice in our tribulation. Are you ready for this? Our troubles, our trials. Knowing. Knowing. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. God is doing things in our difficulties. That tribulation brings about perseverance. We able to endure. Perseverance brings about proven character. He changes us through our tribulations. And proven character brings hope. And hope is what we want and need most in our trials and tribulations. It's an incredible cycle. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We rejoice or exult in our tribulations 
That's clear evidence that our peace is not based on contentment with our circumstances, but our peace is based on God himself, and he makes us content, which is peace. Our defense against doubt, our defense against discouragement, our defense against disillusionment and distrust is our peace with God and peace of God and peace from God. Jesus is looking around the room at supper. He knows what's about to happen. Judas has left the room. He's looking at these 11 men. He understands what's going to transpire in the next 24 hours. He understands by tomorrow morning he's going to be on the cross. He understands by 3 p.m. tomorrow afternoon he's going to be dead and in a grave. He understands that in three days he'll rise from the dead. He understands he'll be leaving them in six weeks to carry the gospel to all the world. That's a big load that he kind of dumped on them at supper and they were troubled. I'm going to leave. Where are you going? To my father's house. You mean down the road to the Temple Mount? No, no. My father's house. Heaven. Why can't we go? Because I want you to be here. And they were anxious. In the middle of all that, have you ever seen this? What does Jesus say to them? John 14, 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Because you have my peace. They drop down into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says in John 16, these things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So does the peace of God guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus? Does it? It can. It will. The key is in that phrase, in Christ Jesus. There's where I hope. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Our goal should be driving each other into what we believe, what we know, so that we have that peace in practical application and living. Encouraged from each other. So that Paul will say in the next to last verse of Ephesians, peace be to the brethren. Satan is after you to dislodge your peace. Don't let him. Settled theological confidence in God's truth will give you peace and drive away the anxiety he wants to use to dislodge your trust in our holy and helpful Savior. Father, give us the grace that only you can to understand and apply your peace theologically and practically. 
In Jesus' name, amen.